0: your Bibles and open up to Joshua chapter 7, Joshua chapter 7, and if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you, and if you're using a pew Bible, it should be about page 215, 215 if you're using one of those, and uh, I just want to make sure everyone's got a copy of God's Word in their hands, you online are no exemption to that, make sure you have a Bible ...in front of you so that you can follow along. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what um, uh, my opinion is. It doesn't matter what I think about this. What matters is what God says about this. And we need to keep that clear and focused, church. That is what we should yearn for and desire. And uh, we are continuing our series through the book of Joshua... And our theme in this series is God is bigger. And uh, it's been a couple of weeks now. Uh, I was gone last week. And so um, we're going to see how warmed up you are today. So I'm going to count to three. I want you to proclaim this truth. All right. Regardless of what mountains stand in front of you today. Regardless of uh, where you find yourself emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually. I want you to hear and know that God is bigger. So I want us to proclaim this truth together today, okay? So I'm going to count to three. I want you to declare this. Blow me away, church. Here we go. One, two, three. Amen. And let's hang on to that, okay? Let's be faithful to remind each other of that and uh, to cling to that hope. Uh, Now, we have uh, to kind of bring you up to speed in our journey through Joshua, as far as we've come from Joshua chapter one through chapter six. Here's what's taken place. So at the beginning of Joshua, we see the Lord commission Joshua, uh, this man of God who has walked with Moses for quite a few years. And uh, this coming right off of 40 years of wandering in the desert. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, when we read that and when we think about that, it should cause us to kind of verbally uh, in and of ourselves go, oh, Okay, 40 years of wandering in the desert. So I'm going to say that statement one more time. And I just want you all to, corporately, I want us to just kind of sigh like that. Oh, Because that's a long time, it's a long time to be in the desert, wandering around, waiting for the promises of God to be fulfilled. And I'm convinced many of you probably have felt this at some time or another, so we're going to feel this corporately to fit into the narrative of the whole in Scripture. So let's try this, All right? They were uh, just coming off of having wandered in the desert for 40 years. Ah, that's good. Okay, sets the tone, right? So in the midst of all of this, after the wandering and a whole generation of people die off, God has raised up not only a new leader in Joshua, but also a new generation of people in the nation of Israel to follow after His commands. The very thing the prior generation did not do. They come into the promised land. They cross the Jordan. God performs a miracle. He dams up the water of the Jordan. They cross over on dry land. Then they celebrate on the other side and uh, they commit, they recommit and set themselves apart according to God's law as a people, as a nation. Then they come to their very first city that is to be conquered, Jericho. This very familiar story to many people who've read scripture, have grown up in the church and children's ministry, you've heard this, and God presents to Joshua what seems like an absolutely ridiculous strategy. You're going to walk around the walls time and time and time again, and then at the end, you're going to yell really loud, and the walls are just going to fall flat. So the people are faithful, they do exactly as God has commanded them. The walls fall flat, the nation of Israel rushes in and takes control, and as God had commanded, devotes everything to destruction. So we could put ourselves kind of in the midst of the camp at this point. Oh, what sweet victory. The rush of adrenaline as a plan, regardless of how ridiculous it seemed, comes to fruition and comes to completion. After the visible working of God to bring this people to where they are today, surely what could stand in their way now? What could stand in front of them that they could not accomplish. Now, this repetitious human condition is kind of a strange thing when you think about it. Ages of history pass where lessons are learned, monuments are set up only to be repeated by generations later. Not only do we see this pattern within the nation of Israel in Scripture, but we also see this today. Most often we see this when we become comfortable or filled with a personal sense of pride that we deserve something, then do we encounter a humbling reminder of God's sovereignty and our desperate need for redemption. So today we pick up our story directly after the fall of Jericho. We could anticipate that spirits are high and the people are feeling confident, but... Unaware to the nation as a whole, sin's destructive power was crouching at the door. Let's pick up in chapter 7, verse 1. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Now, when we read this, It should cause us to pause a minute and go, so what? What's the big deal here? If we just started reading in Joshua and you started in the middle of the book, which I don't recommend. Start at the beginning. But if you started in chapter 7 and you see this take place, you go, okay, I don't understand what the big deal is. Why is this such a problem? Well, if we were to go back to chapter 6 and specifically in verses 17 and 18, as God is giving the instructions to his people about what they're to do when they... Come into the land of Jericho. This is what he says. The city and all that is within it. Everyone say all. All that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live. Because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you, speaking to the nation of Israel. Keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction. Lest when you have devoted them. You take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. What do you know? It's almost like God knew what the tendencies of His people were. He made it very clear. And in fact, this brings about really our first application truth in this narrative that I want you to grab hold of this morning. And that is that no matter how clear God's commands, our tendency is to obey our own demands. You cannot look at this narrative in Scripture and say, well, God didn't make that very clear. He literally said to them, do not take anything because if you do, it will not go well for you. So in the midst of this, when this happens, the nation of Israel as a whole... Cannot look back and go, well, if only God had warned us. And you see, where this hits home is, is this not what you and I do? You see, God is not some vindictive God who sets an expectation out there, so much so that you have no idea what He is expecting of you so much so that you have no idea what you're supposed to do or how you're to live or how you're to act. He has made it very clear. The problem is, you and I, in and of our flesh, we love to obey ourselves. We love to obey our own fleshly, sinful passions and desires because honestly, in the moment, that in and of itself is what makes me happy. This is not a new concept. Isaiah 53 reminds us that we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to whose way? His own way. The book of Judges states the same thing over and over and over and over again through the narrative of Judges. It says the people did what was right in whose eyes? Their own eyes. Why is this? Because from Genesis all the way to Revelation... And the prophecies yet to come, there is an understanding that we, as a fleshly focused people, are most prone to obey our own demands rather than the commands of the Lord, no matter how clear they are. You need to remember that in the Garden of Eden, there was one command, it was very clear do not eat of the fruit on this tree church. God has made his commands very clear. And in fact, Romans chapter one tells us that God has revealed himself. He's made himself clear to the point that no one is without excuse. No matter how clear God's commands, our tendency is to obey our own demands. Sin's power is destructive. Everyone say destructive. Be on guard, church. Let's pick up in, chap- in verse 2 of chapter 7. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Bethaven, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai, and they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about thirty-six of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarium and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies, for the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth and what will you do for your great name now not all that surprising the spies go into the land and they come back and they're really confident why is that because they've just seen God do these two amazing miraculous things in their midst he Dammed up the water. He made it dry so they could walk across. He collapsed the walls of Jericho. And there's no possible way the people could look and say, we did this. It was all the Lord. 100% the Lord. So now these spies go up. And they're going, man, this is a small army. We don't even need everyone. We just need about 3,000 guys. This is going to be a piece of cake. The Lord's with us. What do we got to fear? Let's go. And much to their dismay, they are chased away and 36 men lose their life. Now you can imagine the toll this takes on the whole feeling of the culture around the nation of Israel at this point. What happened? How could God let this happen? Apparently Joshua felt the same way. Because his exact words in chapter 7 are, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. Was this it? Is God simply vindictive and deceptive in that he would bring this people this far only to turn from them and give them over to destruction for no reason? Let's look at God's response to Joshua in verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, Get up! Now, I don't know what the Lord actually sounded like, but that's what I imagine in my head as I read this. Get up! Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They've stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. I want you to pause for a moment. I want you to reread that last part of verse 13. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. This brings us to our second application focus here. You will not find or experience lasting victory as long as there is undealt with sin in your life. As long as there is undealt with baggage in your life, you should not expect to experience lasting victory Over the things which plague you most. Now you may look at this and say. Matt this is Old Testament. God's relationship with his people is different here. Yet. I want to draw your attention to a couple of New Testament passages. That emphasize the same truth. As what's seen. Between God and his people. The nation of Israel in Joshua 7. 1 Thessalonians 5 speaks about. This is written to the church. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It's literally that as the prompting of the Holy Spirit in your life to move you in a direction that's more and more godly and less and less worldly, the more you silence that voice, the quieter it gets. The more you push those clear commands away, the quieter that voice gets. And the danger of this is that the promise, the sealing promise in Christ according to the New Testament is that the Spirit of God dwells in you. And it is that, it is the Spirit of God that is what gives you power over sin, power over temptation. It's what gives you the ability to know what is right versus what is wrong. And the more I silence that voice, the quieter it becomes, and the louder my flesh becomes. Husbands, first Peter three seven gives probably one of the, one of the very humbling commands in Scripture where it talks about how do we treat our wives? Literally to Live with your wife in an understanding way, to treat her as, honor her as the weaker vessel. And if you don't do this, the way you're called to in Christ, if you do not love your wives as Christ loved the church, 1 Peter 3, 7 says, your prayers will be hindered. What? You mean if I don't walk and live in this clear command that I'm to cherish my wife as Christ has loved the church, then... My prayers may not be heard. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Why? Because in that moment, I'm living with undealt with sin. I'm okay with myself being in a state of sinfulness. And should I, in a state of sinfulness, really expect God to intervene on my behalf? In First John 1, we have one of the greatest promises in Scripture, an assurance of victory. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What does that say for the person who chooses not to confess their sin? It doesn't change the availability of forgiveness. But what it does change is your posture to sin and that forgiveness. Forgiveness is only applied when sin is confessed, church. And we can find great solace in the fact that when we confess, when we recognize we are sinful people, when we recognize that we have done wrong according to God's Word, according to what He has established, according to His holiness, we have done wrong. If we confess that, we repent of that, there is forgiveness. But it is foolish of me to think that somehow I am forgiven just because... I decide to claim that as my own without ever confessing that I have sin that needs forgiven. You will not experience lasting victory as long as there is undealt with sin in your life. In the next section of Joshua 7, the perpetrator of this sin is found out. And what's interesting about this is God narrows this down. So, as you read through the next portion of this, it's just the process by which God narrows this down. He starts with tribes, and then goes to clans, and then goes to households, and eventually ends up on an individual. Because God knows. Everyone say, God knows. We have to pause here for a minute and recognize something. Because in the whole mix of this narrative, we have the character of Achan. The one who's committed the sin. And you know what's absent in this whole narrative until we get to the point where he's singled out? He doesn't come forward. He doesn't admit that this was him. Until he's backed into a corner, he stays silent. And we have to wonder what's going through his mind is out of all the 12 tribes in the nation of Israel, the tribe of Judah is selected. Oh man. And then out of all of the clans, all of the family structures in the tribe of Judah, his clan is selected. It's getting closer. And then out of all the households in that clan, his household is selected. Still nothing. Not until he is the one selected out of his own household. And he's confronted with it. He had every opportunity to confess his sin and didn't. There's many parallels in this to a day that's coming, church, when as Scripture tells us, every one of us will stand before God in judgment and nothing will be hidden from His sight. God knows. Now, if you were to read just this section of Joshua 7 and you read Achan's confession, you might be prone to be like, "Whoa, he, he confessed, right? He, he was, seemed remorseful. He seemed to be uh, repentant of this. If you look at verses 19 uh, through 21 says, Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel. Give praise to him and tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. As if he could at this point. And Achan answered Joshua, truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted them and took them. See, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with silver underneath. You might read that and you go, Hey, seems like an upright guy. He fessed up to it. No, he didn't, church. Not until he was cornered and God soloed him out and said, This is the man who is guilty. Sadly, church, we're in a season where this is happening more and more. Even to people who some of us might have seen as pillars within the church who have failed spir- failed spiritually, failed morally. And it's a grave warning to us. Nothing, nothing is hidden from the Lord. The truth will be revealed. But do we live like that's the case? You see, more and more, and I, I, I see this in my own life, church, Our tendency is to just gloss over sin, to to decrease the depravity of my sinfulness because I end up comparing it to the other people around me rather than the standard being the holiness of God. And if the standard of holiness is God Himself, then my goodness, when I look upon my sinfulness, it should bring me to my knees in mourning and sorrow because I am filthy but too often we're just like Achan we hide and we hide and we hide and we hide we push it off, it's not a big deal, it's not a big deal church, someday it will be a big deal whether that is on this earth or standing before the throne of God there will come a day it's a big deal In chapter 7, verses 22 through 26, Achan, and all he has is stoned and burned. And only then does the Lord relent of his anger against the sin of his people. Verse 26, they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor, which means trouble. Here's the application truth in this church. Sin demands a price. And that price is death. Romans reminds us of this. That the wages of sin is death. Have you ever wondered why the price for sin is death? Hebrews 9 verse 22 It says, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You see, sin taints the whole being. One minute ounce of sin taints all of us. Once it's been tainted, it cannot be untainted. You cannot overflow that which is tainted with so much holiness that it becomes untainted. That moment in time, that instant of fleshly failure brings about destruction. We often s- spend time reading Scripture and marveling at how the people of God could have kept all the commandments of the Old Testament. How did they do it before Christ? Yet, we never really stop to consider this one thing, church. God was never Everyone say never. God was never required to make a way for people to be in right standing with Him. He chose to. No one gave God an ultimatum and said if you don't require a way for people to be redeemed, then you can't be God anymore. God Himself chose To make a way for you to be redeemed from your sin. Because He knew that left to your own selves, you're going to die as a result. See, in the midst of the nation of Israel, a tainting had happened. And the only way for that tainting to be removed was for for that person's life to be removed. For you and me, the only way for the tainting to be completely removed would be for you and I to be completely removed. And permanently separated from God. He had every right to wipe every one of us from the face of the earth the moment that we chose ourselves over Him. Yet. In His sovereignty, in His goodness, God offers grace. His grace in the Old Testament was a means by which the people could be declared righteous when they acted wrongly. In the New Testament, it's a new covenant that is born through God in the flesh, Christ Jesus. That in Christ, that which is far from Christ could be brought near. That which was tainted by sin could be made clean. That which had no hope could be given an eternal hope. And this is where the tide turns in this. Sin demands a price. And that price has been paid by Jesus. God has given us the greatest gift known to mankind. And yet, what are we doing, church? And I say that because as I, I'll be honest with you, last night as I sat down and finished this, I turned to my wife and I said, this is going to be a really hard message. And don't make the mistake of putting me at some place where this isn't hard for me. Because you and I, we're all in the same boat, church. But here's the hard truth. You and I have become way too comfortable with our sin. And we become okay with things that have completely tainted the Gospel message. And we abuse the grace of God that's given us in Christ because we claim a promise and we don't live in it. And yet what we have been called to, is every day when we wake up and every night before we lay down, we stop and we recognize that my sinfulness has made it impossible for me to be joined and in the presence of God. And yet Christ gave everything so that I could. And then when my feet hit the floor, my motivation for choosing to live according to God's word and not my own is because apart from what He has given me in Jesus, I have nothing. And that very thing that gives us victory and hope and joy and peace, Jesus our Savior, is then what is to be the uniting factor amongst all of us that believe in the name of Jesus to be saved. So here's what we're going to do, church, because this is heavy and you may be sitting there going, oh, my goodness. I am convicted by the sin in my life that has been left unconfessed. And I need to get I need to be in right standing with God, knowing that there is forgiveness already given church. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up and they're going to play this one song, and during this, this song, I want you to just reflect. I, I want you to just reflect. And I want you to confess sin. And maybe there is a wrong you've committed to a brother and sister in Christ, or your spouse, or your children, and this is the time before you take communion. You need to, you need to take time and confess that sin. Verbally. And so, whatever posture you need to take in response in this time, I want you to do that. If you need to kneel right where you're at, you do that. If you just need to stay seated and spend time in prayer, I want you to do that, whatever you need to do to confess sin and bring to light those things that have remained hidden in your life and then after that, we're going to take we're going to take the bread together, which is Represented by the top. There's a wafer in the top of this cup. And then we're going to have the verse and the chorus of another song sang. Then we're going to take the cup together. And we're going to do this in remembrance of what Christ has done on our behalf. Father, we need your help. Lord, we are incapable of doing this ourselves. Lord, bring to light through conviction, through this challenge that You would help to bring about victory in our lives over the sin which we've allowed to stay rooted in our being. We know it's wrong. We know we need to bring that to light. We know we need to move from a place of rooting into our flesh to rooting into what You've called us to. So Lord, convict us by Your Spirit. Amplify the Spirit's voice in our life That you might unite us and renew us as your people. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.